Well, if you would please open with me your copy of God's Word to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Uh, We have been uh, learning uh, through this section of John about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Now, the Jewish leaders, as we have seen, uh, as sadly in opposition uh, to the work and the uh, words of Jesus, and uh, they are doing whatever they can to catch Jesus saying something or doing something so that they can condemn Him. Now, they are blind to the miracle of the blind man, kind of ironic, right? They are proclaiming themselves as shepherds of Israel, and yet they deny the true shepherd. Again, the irony. Now, these leaders continue trying to trip up Jesus in His words during our text, uh, having Him proclaim Himself as the Christ, God's promised Savior. But what they end up doing instead is revealing their own hearts. Now, I hope that the Lord would reveal to us our hearts this morning as He uh, shows us that God is unified in His mission And so we must trust His one plan, His one purpose, and His one path. That God is unified in His mission so that we would trust Him in His one plan, His one purpose, and His one path. Please follow along as I read from John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. This is indeed the Word of the living God. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around Him and said to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my, fa- of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one." The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. 
Let's pray one more time. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Who is Jesus? That is the most important question that every single human being must answer. And your answer to that question is the difference between eternal life and eternal damnation. And so as we see from John's gospel, John is an evangelist. He wants the world to understand that there is only one way to be saved, and it is by faith in Jesus Christ. In this text, John helps us take yet another step to understand who Jesus is. Now, the Pharisees had theological doctorates, and yet they were blind to the truth about Jesus as the Christ, as prophesied in the Old Testament. They were blind shepherds, and they were still trying to lead Israel. They stood in the way of the true word to come to God's people. I mean, the irony in John 9 and chapter 10 is so thick, it's pretty incredible. Now, we here a few weeks ago, you know, last week, the blind, or two weeks ago, the blind man being healed, and we are excited to see this wonderful, amazing miracle about what God is doing. And how do the Pharisees respond to that, right? They condemn the man who is healed, trying to do something to get evidence against Jesus. Isn't it interesting that when we demonize a person, he's already wrong, and all we're doing is looking for evidence? Isn't that sad among human relations? Well, it's most stark here between the Pharisees and Jesus. Now, the leaders are blind to the fact that from the very beginning, God has given us one plan. Verse 22 says that the event that was taking place was the Feast of Dedication, also called the Festival of Lights. And if some of you have translations in the footnote, it might say the celebration of Hanukkah. Yes, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Now, this was not an Old Testament feast, but it was rather a celebration of the overthrow of the first wave of the Roman army, this led by Judas Maccabeus in 164 BC. They restored the desecrated temple, and a feast of dedication was made for them to uh, rededicate the temple to God. So there's our history lesson on Hanukkah. Now, as we think about Jesus coming, right, he came to protect his people from false teachers desecrating the temple as well. And so we see in verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, why are the Jews still blind to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah? because they didn't believe what the Scriptures said about Him. For instance, Isaiah 29. It says in verse 18, "...in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, 
And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. That day, the day of the Lord has come. Jesus, the Messiah, has shown up. And by His words and by His miracles, we see all of the connections between the prophecies and what He is doing. So why are these very biblically educated men rejecting what is so plain to them? Because their blindness is spiritual. Scripture also calls it spiritual deadness. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, for you are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Historically, this is known as the doctrine of total depravity. Now, during the Reformation week that we've enjoyed this week, it is very helpful for us to review the doctrines of grace uh, that have been handed down to us uh, theologically, but also very clearly from John chapter 10. Now, the followers of John Calvin addressed the heresies that were being taught by the followers of Jacob Arminius, and they have responded with an acronym of TULIP, right? And so T of the TULIP that we just talked about is talking about the nature of man. It is a question of, is man basically good, or is he totally depraved. And all the false teachings that we're aware of begin by this, by addressing a false teaching of the nature of man. And so in this particular situation, uh, some people deny the fact that we are blind and dead spiritually by nature. Some people would say we're just merely spiritually sick, and many others would just say we are ignorant is the main problem. Now, we, uh, what's, what we are learning here is the total depravity is total in the sense that it encompasses and influences the entire person. It is not saying uh, that it, we are as evil as we could be, right? Thankfully, by God's common grace, He restrains the sin that is natural to our hearts, or we would be robbing and stealing and killing every person every day that got in our way like we were savage beasts if we were going to be as evil as we possibly could be. And thankfully, that's not what is happening. And so the point in the relation to the passage is that every person, the Jewish leaders included, will remain dead in sin and blind to who Jesus is until the Spirit of God gives them new life and gives them eyes to see the Savior, ears to hear His Word, and faith to trust in Him. The next doctrine taught in our text is the U, unconditional election. Now, unconditional simply means it is not based on what God saw in the future about anything good in us or any future faith, as some have taught. Now, the question is, have you, or have you ever wondered why you believe but your neighbor does not? What's the reason? Is it just because of ignorance? And I would say certainly not because I've shared the gospel with lots and lots of people who did not believe. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, the only perfect evangelist that has ever existed, preached the gospel and people did not believe. And so clearly ignorance is not the primary reason. Well, is it simply because, I mean, we're just smarter than those dumb unbelievers? Oh, 
If that, even, if that pride lurks in our hearts, even a hint of that, we could never reach anyone if it's just we think we're smarter. Certainly not that. No, Jesus said plainly to the religious leaders in verse 26, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, many Christians today assume just the opposite of what Jesus said. They will teach and they will preach that if you hear the gospel and you repent and you put your faith in Jesus, then you become his sheep. It's just that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. I mean, Ephesians 1 is very clear that God chose us before the foundation of the world. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, we love him because he first loved us. And so if you really want the most direct teaching on this issue, just take some time and prayerfully walk through Romans chapter 9 and ask the Lord to show you what does the Scriptures teach about unconditional election. Well, we know that the Father is the one who elects. Next, we see that the Son is the one who atones, right? We learned last week in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for who? I lay down my life for the sheep. It does not say he lays down his life for the goats, right? These, this has been called the doctrine of limited atonement, the L of tulip. Now, many people, this is where they stumbled, and you know, we have four-point Calvinists. This is, this is the one they would reject, right? It's saying, you know, I'm, I'm not believing in a limited atonement. So, some have said, well, we don't really like that language. We're going to change it a little bit. We're going to call it particular redemption, right? It makes it a little more clear what we're talking about. But every Christian limits the atonement in one way or another. If you follow what Jesus and Paul are saying, then you limit the number of people for whom Jesus died. And if you're following what others would say, we would actually be limiting the number of sins that Jesus died for. So we ask ourselves, if Jesus died for every human being that ever lived, then why is every human being not going to be in heaven? Because Scripture is clear that some will not be. So the person might answer, because they reject Jesus. Well, that's true. But the question is, if Jesus died for every single sin that was ever committed, it would include the sin of rejecting Jesus. And if that is paid for, then the Father has nothing with which to withhold that person from heaven. And so the only other answer we could conclude is that Jesus died for the sheep as he said. And that's the conclusion. Now, if you disagree with that, I would love to talk with you more about that. Sometimes this is something that you might wrestle with, and it's a hard thing to understand. I'd love to walk with you through that if that's something you'd like to do. Now we come to the eye of tulip. Jesus said in the next verse, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And what do they do? They follow me. He says it even more explicitly in John chapter 6 when Jesus said in verse 37, all that the Father give me will come uh, to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He's jumping into the next uh, perseverance, which we'll get to in a minute. Now, this is the doctrine of irresistible grace, right, which theologians have renamed effectual calling. 
Now, all people whom the Father elected and for whom the Son died, right, will come by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what about choice, we might ask? And so, let me give the choice to you. Here's the question. Would you rather spend eternity in the blessings of God or eternity receiving His just wrath? Which one would you rather have? If you believe the Scriptures, it is an irresistible choice. We're saying, of course, I would want heaven. The the Spirit draws us because we believe this is true. Jesus is the only way. We read in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so what we have to realize is faith does not well up from within a dead soul. It does not come from us. It is a gift of God that His Spirit must give us after He regenerates us and gives us new life. Then He gives us faith to hear, to believe, to trust in Jesus. Now, my friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is why understanding sound theology is so important. Right? The church has wrestled with the relationship of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility for thousands of years. And yet, it is not just something to debate for theologians in seminaries and universities. It comes down to asking the question, who saves me? Does God save me? Do I save me, or is it God and me? That's the question that we're trying to have answered. And most would say, well, I know God saves. I know that's the truth. But many would say, Jesus did his part. He lived, he died, he rose again, and I have to do my part to believe. But if we understand what Ephesians 2 says, we're knowing we're not capable of that as those who are dead in sin. It must be done and given to us. That's why Jesus said in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are unified in one plan of salvation that existed from before the foundation of the world so that your assurance of salvation is rooted in the very character of God. He is the only one that can enable us to persevere unto the very end as we rest in Christ and in His promises. Now, God not only has one plan, but He also has one purpose. Look again at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone Me? The Jews answered Him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Our Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth with one purpose. He came to fulfill His Father's will. Jesus said that He and the Father are one. And if there is one thing the Jews were certain of, is that there is one God. Every single day, they would recite the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
So the Jews could not conceive of a trinity, of God being one God in three persons, even though it is clearly found in the Old Testament, in Genesis, and Psalms, and many other places, the trinity is very clear. But what it requires is the light of the New Testament to make it abundantly clear. And so the Jews were right about one thing, Jesus was claiming to be God. Dr. R.C. Sproul compared this trial to the similar trial that Martin Luther went through with the Diet of Worms and was told to recant the writings that he had laid out on a table before him. He said that he had written many things that many of the Catholic scholars had agreed with and had written themselves. So which teaching specifically is he supposed to recant? And so in a similar way, right, Jesus says, for which of my miracles are you going to stone me? And what you see is if the persecutor, or the prosecutor, I guess is the right word, the prosecutor is not making their case clearly to articulate what the exact crime is, then they have failed in their job. And so Jesus defends himself from God's word, saying in verse 34, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82, where God addresses the uh, abusive judges that are in Israel. The term God is not only referring to our Lord, but generically the word God is someone who has a sovereign power over a particular sphere. Now, the judges of Psalm 82 served as sovereign power over Israel, but they abused their power, much like the Pharisees were doing in our context. And in Psalm 82, God is declaring the judgment uh, upon them because He is God over every sphere. He is the God above all gods. And so Jesus simultaneously defended uh, calling Himself the Son of God while at the exact same time rebuking the Pharisees who were acting like these abusive judges. Jesus is perfectly wise as we well know. Now, many heretics have actually used these verses to try to say Jesus is just saying he's no different than these judges, which is exactly opposite of what Jesus is doing. He is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If the Old Testament calls these mere mortals gods in their particular sphere of authority, how much more appropriate if the one who came from God and performed divine miracles, how much more worthy is Jesus to call himself one with God, to call himself the Son of God, to call himself uh, one with the Father? Now, Jesus continues in his defense, uh, saying that he has one purpose, saying in verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Now, Jesus has made his identity known in word, in deed, but the religious leaders refused to believe because of the deadness of their hearts 
and the pride uh, that exists there, uh, resisting God in the hardness of their hearts. Their desire was to have no connection with Jesus whatsoever. They desired no oneness with Him, but Jesus desires oneness with us. He and the Father are one, and we will see in just a few chapters in His high priestly prayer in John 17, He takes this exact same language and then applies it to us. He says in verse 20, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What did Jesus say is the purpose of such oneness? It is that, the purpose clause, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's all about the faithfulness of our witness. And so I wonder, are you one with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you stand opposed to someone? Do you avoid someone? Do you disregard someone who is made in the image of God and bought by the precious blood of Jesus? All conflict and all disunity harms our witness in enabling the world to know that Jesus came to reconcile sinners to a holy God and sinners to one another. That is the ministry of reconciliation that we have been given as a church. Jesus has delegated that to us. And so I want to ask you, where is your heart this morning? Do you spend more time thinking about what threat another person might be to your life, to your own power, to your own preferences. Well, if that's us, then we're showing we have a more rebellious heart like the Pharisees. And I think all of us, I know I am, a recovering Pharisee. But the question is, with that pride that lurks in our hearts, do we hate it when we see it, or do we just give it full reign in our mouths and in our lives and in our relationships? Well, the Lord is the only one that can convict our hearts and redirect us to the humility of Jesus, to the one who walked with the Father doing what He called us to do, and that is to draw us together in unity. And so Jesus came to reveal that one purpose, to glorify the Father by doing His will. Now, we failed in that, right? Jesus is the only one that ever lived the perfect life that we failed to live, right? He's the only one who died on the cross to pay the sin debt that our sins deserve, and He is the only one to rise again from the dead. So that as we turn from that sin, from any of our sin, to trust in Him alone, that we can have that hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Scripture is clear about these promises, and it shows us thirdly that there is one 
path. First, we saw there's one plan. Second, we saw there's one purpose. And lastly, there is one path. Look again at verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true, and in that place many believed in Jesus. Now, Jesus made a strategic retreat at this point. Why would he do that? Because his time had not yet come. And yet he still retreats only to then advance the kingdom more by having people come to him where they had been gathering for months and years during the ministry of John the Baptist. He's brilliant. Oh, that's right. He's God. He's perfect. So he knows what he's doing. But when we think about all of these religious leaders who have the greatest theological education of the day, rejecting the words of Jesus and the person of Jesus, and yet you have the weak and the broken, the ones who recognize, I don't have it all together. I'm not the best. I fall short of God's glory. Those are the ones that are coming to Christ, and they're saying, He's the one. The Savior's come, and they believed. And so, John the Baptist knew in his ministry he must decrease and Jesus must increase, and that's exactly what we are seeing in this particular passage of Scripture. John's purpose was to prepare a people to receive the Christ, and the Christ has come. And so my question is for you is, where is your heart this morning? Some of you have grown up hearing the good news, and you've never remember a day of not believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And we praise the Lord for that. That was our prayer for our boys as they were growing up, that they would always know the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord. The question for us is, have we walked faithfully in the oneness with our Father and in the oneness with His people so that we can testify in an effective way to the world that we are really those that are saved by grace because we want to offer that grace in each of our relationships. Well, the Lord is the only one who can do that work. Perhaps you're harboring bitterness against the Lord. Maybe you're harboring bitterness against another believer or more. The Lord can bring you to a place of recognizing that all of these things that have happened, all the wrath that those sins deserve was laid upon our Lord Jesus Christ, and He can set us free from that bitterness. Now, others perhaps have heard about Jesus. Maybe you've been in church. Maybe you haven't for uh, your growing up years. But maybe you have never given over total control of your life to say, He is the one that I will follow. Not my will, but His be done. He is the one that I want to follow. I'm asking you, where has your own path led you thus far? The devil, his tactic is to distract you, to divide you, and to destroy you. And if your path sounds more like that, the question is, will you turn to the path of Jesus, which is the path of life? Will you hear the words of your Savior calling you? Do you hear the voice of your shepherd saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, 
for I am gentle. He calls us to that one path to trust in Him alone. And so I call you to come because in Jesus, He is our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray together. Father, You know our hearts perfectly. You know how quickly we look to the left and to the right and hope that someone else hears and turns. And yet, Lord, what are you calling me to do? What are you calling me to do in hearing the voice of my shepherd? Is it to reconcile with one I'm divided from? Is it to reconcile with you as one I am divided from? Lord, you alone can do that work and show us the power and the glory of your gospel and of your grace. We ask you to do your great work. We pray it in Jesus' most holy name. Amen.